The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm George Hay, Associate Editor of Reuters Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters. Anyone with an interest in finance will have noticed that so-called environmental, social and governance investing has of late been getting a bit of a kicking. Tesla boss Elon Musk has taken to Twitter to complain about what he sees as the nonsensical way ESG ratings are put together. HSBC recently parted company with its head of responsible investing, Stuart Kirk, after he advised that investors shouldn't worry about climate risk. And there's general concern that ESG is a strong enabler of greenwashing. So is the whole field a massive waste of time and effort? Breaking Views talked to Bridgewater Associates co-chief investment officers for sustainability, Karen Carniel-Tambor and Carsten Stendervad, and found out that ESG is more of a muddle than a fiddle. Hi, Carsten. Hi, Karen. Uh, thanks for sparing the time to talk. Thanks for having us. Great. Well, um, maybe we could kick off by asking a really simple question, but a quite fundamental and important question. What what do we mean by sustainable investing? What do you mean by it? And what's, how does Bridgewater define it? It really comes back to a very simple and high level question, which is why are you focused on sustainable investing? Is the orientation that you uh, are seeking to create better uh, risk-adjusted returns and you think that issues related to the environment or social issues, if you understand them better, that can help you achieve better risk-adjusted returns? That is one approach. People usually would talk about that as ESG integration. Or are you asking a different question, which is you're saying, I'm not just trying to create the best possible risk-adjusted returns. I actually care about where my capital is deployed And I want to think about both returns, but also how my capital is affecting the world. This latter approach of thinking uh, about both the impact on returns and the impact on the world, some people might call it dull materiality, that's a different way of thinking about it. And, you know, different investors think about it differently. Um, Certainly, we think to the extent that issues related to the environment or social issues are important for returns, of course, all investors should look at that. And it will be one right. of many things to look at. But we think that's a very different question from the from the from this second approach of double materiality, where you're asking about the impact of your capital on the world. And we think it's very important to distinguish clearly between these two approaches. We have portfolios that do both. And it's, it's a different way of investing if you try to have two objectives versus just one. But this right. simple okay. so, question... So, so, yeah, so we kind of got the, you know, the impact of the world and climate change and whatever else on your portfolio, um, having an impact on your returns, and then the impact of your your portfolio in a world, in a way on the world and um, and and your operations on the world, um, and they are kind of rather different things. So that's really interesting. But it, it, do you think um, you said you kind of at Bridgewater you um, differentiated quite quite sharply between those two things? Do you do you think that's what um, do you think there's enough differentiation out there in general? Because um, there is a lot of kind of confusion over what we're what we're trying to do in sustainable investing. Um, so, do do you think everyone differentiates it as quite as sharply as you do? No, what I'd think- say, George, is that a year or two ago, certainly three or five years ago, the approach of saying I care what my portfolio does for the world mm. was almost heretical. 
very, very few serious investors were even willing to entertain that. You'd very quickly get, look, that's kind of for do-gooders. That's not for us. That's great. That's interesting. But that's not what we do. We are focused on risk and return. Everything comes down to risk and return. And the pace that's changing in the world is extremely rapid. I mean, the clearest example of it by far is the degree of net zero commitments we see institutions making. So if you come out and you say, look, all the way to 2050, I'm going to make sure that my investments are aligned with building a net zero world. You're making that commitment regardless of what might happen between now and 2050, which is almost 30 years. Regardless of is it going to be good for risk, good for return, you're making a commitment today to have sort of a binding constraint that says my capital is going to be part of the solution. My capital is going to be part of shifting the world in a certain direction to solve climate change. I think this is pretty much unheard of some number of years ago. And the number of institutions going this direction is rising really quickly. That's very interesting. Would you describe the second type of uh, what we've just been talking about there? How would you, how would you, what would you call it? Would you describe it? We called the first type ESG integration in a way. Would you describe the second as impact or would you describe it as something else? Because impact in some ways has kind of conversations with the kind of the view of that, that way of doing things three years ago, perhaps. But how do you, how do you think about it? So we would call it sustainable investing. It's true. There's not a uh, consensus around, around what to call it. The word impact is for many people loaded. We do think that when we think about the dimensions of objectives, everyone would agree on return and risk. And we think impact is a third dimension. But when you say dimension, you also are implying that it's not a yes, no thing. It's really a spectrum. And different types of capital can be on different parts of the impact spectrum. So if you think about at the very far end of the impact spectrum, you could have concessional capital money that's going into areas of the world uh, where private capital would not flow and where you could clearly demonstrate additionality of the capital and causality of your capital towards a real world outcome. That's like at the far end of impact. Then you can go a little bit further in and maybe you have philanthropic capital and then maybe a little bit further in you have very impact oriented private funds that really prioritize impact as much or maybe even over returns and you go further and further in. The idea though, throughout this spectrum of impact, the question you're asking is the same, which is what is the the impact of my portfolio on the world? And then it's just to varying degrees that the capital can can have have an impact. Yeah, and incidentally, I suppose we we haven't actually, um, uh, ironically, we haven't mentioned yet ESG in a material way because we specific, I specifically asked about sustainable investing. Now, ESG has been taking a bit of a, a, a kicking from uh, various critiques. There's various critiques of it floating around. Some some of which that it's basically ineffective and kind of or or malign and greenwashy. Uh, some of it's that it's um, too over the top. But uh, like, how do you kind of um, slot ESG investing into what we're talking about here? Do you, is it is it the same thing or is it an unhelpful? Is there a reason why you call it sustainable investing? You know, there's again no real consensus on words, and that is part of the problem. But if you look at the critique of ESG, I think you can bucket it in a couple of different ways. Mm. The first grouping of critique is really a critique that goes back to the question of lack of clarity around the goal of of uh, ESG. So, for example, mm. when you see a ranking in the news that calls a tobacco company an ESG stock because they treat their workers well and they have a low carbon footprint. 
I think a lot of people might say that's odd. I don't think that's a bit weird. But actually, that's because uh, that's I guess one interpretation of people saying, "Well, do I think climate change is going to affect uh, cigarette companies uh, and their returns?" Probably not. Mm. That's why we think it's so important to ask the question. Well, how about you reverse the question? Uh, what's the impact of tobacco companies on the world? And I think no one in the world would disagree that it has a negative impact. So right. I think one bucket of critique of ESG is saying, "What are you really talking about? Are you are you talking about?" its impact on returns or are you talking about the impact on its on the world exactly yeah a second i think a second topic of critiques is you know if if you have investors who say they do they really integrate uh and think a lot about environmental and social issues and they don't do it that's of course bad that i think is a is a legitimate uh, type of, of of concern right. then there's a third uh, critique which is if you have investors who exaggerate the impact that uh, their investment choices have on the world, that's also bad. So for example, let's say we found the most sustainable company in the world and everyone agreed this is the most sustainable company in the world and we invested in it. Could we now claim credit for the impact that that company is having on the world? Right. Or can we only say, no, we are invested in a company and the company is having this impact? And I think it's fair that to say and to demand that investors be very clear about uh, well, what is the nature of the impact, and how are you having uh, how are you having that impact? Mostly to that, we would say, as an investor, there's really three things you can do. You can buy and sell, you can allocate capital, and then of course, then you can be an active owner once you have uh, made an, an investment. And yeah. you should just be clear about that is the impact that you're having, and don't take credit for all great things that happen just because you've invested in a particular company. Right. I'll just add one more critique to the list Karsten gave because there's so many okay. and a critique I actually agree with, which is this idea that in all this enthusiasm about investors starting to prioritize their impact on the world, which we really think is great. It's fantastic for investors to think about their impact, much like voters should think about their impact and consumers should think about their impact and so on. We've yeah. kind of lost the importance of governments also playing their role and realizing that governments have a lot of tools to set incentives. And so for investors on their own to change incentives, to shift what's going to happen in the world, I mean, you, know, you need a lot of investors to do things and it happens through pricing mechanism and that takes time. And government, of course, can play a really powerful role in any sense that this makes us forget uh, the importance of you know regulation and government um, is, is extremely important. And if I can add one more critique that I think is also valid is when investors exaggerate the potential alpha implications of ESG investing. In other words, if you make simplistic arguments that's along the lines of this company is sustainable, ergo it will outperform. That's not going to pass muster in any investment committee, and you're not helping anyone by making such arguments. I think right. if you look at all these critiques, in a way, what they have in common, we believe, is a lack of intellectual clarity about why you're doing it and yeah. how you're doing it. So although we think a lot of this critique is warranted, that is not the same thing as saying that sustainable investing is bad. We actually think it could be a force for good. We just think it's very important to be intellectually clear about the rationales, be very systematic about how you do it, and then try to be as precise as possible in measuring its impact and not to exaggerate it. And if you do right. those things, we really think it can be a force for good uh, in the world and you can invest in a, in a manner that where you both deliver good risk-adjusted returns 
and you have a positive influence on the direction of uh, of the world, moving it to a more sustainable uh, state. So that's that's quite interesting because um, there was one one critique which kind of fits into some of the things you've been saying uh, is like if you if you take a one critique doing the rounds at the moment is if you take a bank which has like a kind of five to ten year loan book, a five year loan book um, in average du duration. Um, the 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 argument is this is not a finite. Why why should why why is it particularly meaningful to obsess about um, uh, climate change risk on that portfolio? Presumably, the way you would look at it is is to say, well, that might that might make sense from a returns perspective, but not necessarily if you turn it around and say the impact of my portfolio on on climate change. And that's kind of what you're talking about, isn't it? That's all. That's the a more exactly. a fuller a fuller way of thinking about it, right? Exactly. Like I'll go even one step further, which is to say, if the private sector is playing a really primary role in moving us away from reliance on things like, let's take coal, which is you know mm. an extreme, in order to help the climate. If the private sector is doing that work rather than government, the mechanism the private sector can use is to make it really hard to finance new coal, to make it really, really difficult to get new coal projects going. And right. what that means is that you can actually make a lot of money doing it right because if no one's willing to finance something you've got to make you know, the returns pretty high to be able to, to actually do it and so right. you could totally imagine that's very consistent with somebody saying look I really believe coal is going to be completely gone in five or ten years but right now there's extremely high rates of return because everybody's shying away from it and right. that's exactly how you'd want the private sector mechanism to work to make it really difficult to finance new coal so when a private sector institution comes in and says well I'm only thinking about risk and return, we say, well, look, is that right? Or do you actually want to be one of those institutions playing a role saying, no, I don't really want to use my capital to be the mm. one that's going to keep getting coal out of the ground, regardless of whether there's a slightly higher return. In fact, we probably need to offer the, the returns have to get skewed that way. That's the pricing power. That is how the private sector actually makes a difference. You can also have, a, you can have many situations of in a way, the tragedy of the commons, as uh, Mark Carney uh, labeled it, where there are things you know will happen in the world that uh, we th we leave with a high confidence are bad for the world. Mm -hmm. But just because that will happen and it will be very bad for the world, if you very narrowly are just focused on your own portfolio for the next three years, yeah, maybe you can ignore it. You can ignore it and your portfolio will be fine. Um, but that is, in a way, it's a it's all back to what are you really trying to assess? Are you just looking at the next couple of years for your own portfolio and that's all you care about? Yeah, mm. then you can, there are many examples in the world and in life of where if you just optimize for a narrow thing, uh, a lot of things can make sense. But if you broaden out uh, the, the scope a bit, uh, it's a different answer. And I think in particular, again, on net zero, if you look at the number of banks or institutions who took the net zero commitment, mm. uh, they... If you look at the statements, it, I, they didn't say we will be, we believe in net zero because we will make more money and we will only do it to the extent that uh, it creates more money. They actually said yeah. we will try to be part of the, um, we will play our part in the transition of the economy to a low carbon future. Right, exactly. They, they, yeah, so. they did not say subject to us uh, making more money off it. Now, of course, it's yeah. a balance. You want to have both. But I think, again, when you have these debates, um, mostly you have still have a lot of financial sector people who are afraid to use the, the language of actually I'm not only optimizing for returns here. I actually have a there are broader societal uh, considerations that I'm taking into account. But to be to be clear, though, I mean, um, like it seems a bit like 
uh, your from a client's point of view, his his or her propensity to kind of either focus only on returns, uh, which, as you say, is kind of a perfectly justifiable, um, you know, plenty of people do still think of it like, like that, but their propensity to kind of look at things like that rather than think about the impact of their portfolio on the world. Um, isn't that, I mean, that's kind of a function of how serious they are worried, how, how much they're worried about climate change, because presumably, kind of logically, if you if you are completely sold on the, the the terrifying impact of climate change, then you will you will be interested in both returns and the impact on the planet because at some point they become um, quite similar, right? Um, so I think that's well said. Like something I've heard some investors say to us, not in quite these blunt terms, but similar, is look, if my job is to leave money behind for the next. 50, 100, 200 years, right? And that's why I'm investing money. It's to give money to people in my country, pensioners, whatever mm. shape of uh, institutional investor this is. Um, of course, I need to leave wealth behind for them. That's my primary job. But if that comes at a cost of leaving behind the kind of world I really don't want to leave for them, what mm. am I doing? Am I really trying to you know, optimize another couple basis points of return and leave behind a world that's uninhabitable? That just doesn't make any sense. And all investing yeah. fundamentally is about leaving wealth behind for the future. Even individual investors are leaving money for their children and grandchildren and not usually just for themselves for five years. So I think that kind of thinking does get intertwined the more you think that if we don't do a good job at this, we're really going to leave behind a world we don't want to be in. George, one of the, I think, big reasons why you still have investors who are uh, tepid about actually moving towards sustainable investing is a concern around, is it actually possible to build portfolios to invest in a, in a manner that will give me both returns uh, and also have it aligned yeah. to positive outcomes? Yeah. That's a, I think that's a very legitimate concern. And in a way, one of the approaches we've tried to take is to, I, I sometimes call it like, let's suspend uh, judgment for a bit. Let's start by actually doing the work of building out an investment approach, investment systems, build out the data that we would need, do all the work that we think would be required if you really wanted to invest in a sustainable manner. Mm -hmm. And then let's try to build engineer portfolios as well as we possibly can. And only once we've done all that work, we've actually done the homework, we've done the research, we've built the systems, we've built the portfolios, then let's look at, do we actually think we can uh, create uh, attractive risk-adjusted returns? Mm. As opposed to upfront, just asking the conceptual question, which a lot of people do, the conceptual question of saying, is an unconstrained optimization better than, than a constrained optimization? To which the answer, mm. of course, is, yeah, theoretically, it's better to have no constraints, to only have one goal. We all know that. Everyone who took yeah. like finance or math like uh, on the first day at, at, at university, <laughs> that's what you learn. But in practice, are you really operating right at that efficient frontier? Are you really taking advantage of all those those opportunities. And in a way, what we try to do is be try to be pragmatic about saying, let's define a clear goal where we say, what if you really wanted to build portfolios that had both financial and the sustainability impact objectives? What would the investment system look like? Do all that. And then at the end, look at, can you actually build great portfolios? And I think the answer today is yes, you can. And a big part of that is, well, A, that more and more investors are deploying substantial amount of resources uh, to tackle the question. And certainly that's what we're doing and many others are doing it also. But B, also that there is a whole ecosystem, a whole data ecosystem that is growing that enables sustainable investing. I mean, the amount of data we now have 
on companies yeah. and countries when it comes to sustainability is phenomenal. Like every day in the news, you always hear about somebody complaining about the lack of sustainability data. I think that's a bit odd. Really, they should be celebrating how much it's expanding. Is it perfect? No. Do we have all the things that we need? No. But if you look at what we have today versus what we had even a year ago and five years ago, it's much more. So it's kind of the, I think there's a combination of both really deploying serious investment resources to the question, being helped by having access to great data. And if you have that, I think you can start building great sustainable portfolios. All right. So to, to what extent, um, you know, the, basically at COP26, there was a, quite a consensus on um, uh, tackling climate change and, um, you know, it was hardly a, a massive success, but there, there did seem to be a consensus. To, to, what, to what extent does the fact that we're in the middle of a, you know, a war, very high energy prices, how is that cutting across what we're talking about here? Do you do you get the impression that uh, a lot of people are just saying, you know, if we're going back to our value versus values or focus on return or focus on something wider, do you think people that's meant a lot of people are focusing more on returns again than they were or, or not? Yeah, I think there's a bunch of cross currents kind of happening at the same time. And it does really matter where you're looking geographically. So broadly speaking, even before the war, our view was that the transition away from carbon was really happening unevenly because it wasn't mm. really being planned top down or anything, right? Mm. And so it was easier to use mechanisms that kind of shut down new investments in oil and new investments in coal than to get a lot more renewables online. So we were already yeah. at a serious risk of sort of getting shortages. Now the war and all that has really exacerbated what we now think is going to be somewhat of a chronic situation of energy shortages. Um, and this hasn't happened in many years. Last time we had chronic energy shortages was the 70s and 80s. It was a very different economy, but this is painful. It's a very hard way. It's stagflationary. It slows the economy. It's you know very painful inflation because if the government doesn't step in, it's much more difficult on uh, poor people that spend a larger share of um, their budgets on heating their homes and transportation. So it's a very yeah. tough set of circumstances. And you're seeing different responses to it in part due to how strong the consensus is on climate change. So like when we look at Europe, um, you know the thing that really happens in an energy shortage is that the incentive to invest in new energy is huge, right? Because there's a shortage. So pricing yeah. comes in and says, please invest in more. And yeah. what we invest in in the next you know, 10 years or so is going to bake in the cake a lot of our path on climate change. So in a yeah. place like Europe, where there's a lot of consensus that tackling climate change is important, you're hearing a lot of redoubled efforts to say, well, if we have to invest a lot in new capacity, we better do it in renewables and yeah. is less of a price sensitivity to that. It's purely, you know, sensitivity to how fast can this happen? How logistically possible is this? How long will it take to get things online and being very practical about it? And so you see the announcement of the last couple of days saying, you know, let's take some of the natural gas and um, nuclear projects and call them green because they can yeah. be part of a green transition. Some of the natural gas pipelines can be used to then be used for hydrogen later. And so I think it's there's a very strong um, alignment that what we want to do is tackle climate change. And now we have an even stronger set of incentives to say what we invest today is what's going to matter. Then you look at a place right. like the United States and the consensus on climate change just isn't nearly as strong. And so there's much more of a sense that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be prioritizing this so much. Uh, you have a much wider range of views. It's much more politically difficult to put the right incentives in place. And, you know, before the war happened, 
the Biden administration already was shying away from issues like let's price carbon, which is, of course, what Europe did because it was yeah. more politically difficult and saying basically, like, let's just subsidize uh, things like yeah. uh, the, the greener ones. And even these things have not passed. And Biden hasn't been able to make that part of the agenda. Hopefully he will. There's still a push to. But it's much more fraught. So it's sort of like you're in this macro environment of significant energy shortages. What we do matters a lot in climate change, but how we choose to address it, because there's very limited top down planning, certainly at a global level, really depends on what the degree of consensus is and what incentives are then put in place for who. Doesn't it make it quite difficult to run a kind of international asset manager in, in when you've got such a kind of bifurcation between um, uh, you know the US and the the EU uh, and and uh, you know other other places in the world take different views but I mean do, do you basically have a isn't it quite difficult you just have to kind of almost have a different approach for um, your different geographies um, when well, everyone should ideally be doing the same thing you know a very I think important premise for us is the hierarchy of the capital system which is mm. at the top you have the savers uh, and or the asset the asset owners and the asset owners be it individual savers or sovereign wealth funds or pension plans foundations they they decide what the objectives of the portfolio should be right. we are the asset managers and in, in, in a way we solve uh, uh, you know, we, we we solve the problems that, that they pose to us. And yep. at the end of the day, asset owners get to decide uh, how their money should be invested. And I think the obligation for us as asset managers is it, in a way to have great solutions for different objectives. So yes, there are parts of the world where people do not uh, believe in sustainable investing, where they only focus on risk adjusted returns, whether that's for personal reasons or for fiduci for regulatory reasons. And so then you invest uh, in one manner. And then there are other areas of the world, a really growing part of the world, Europe, but even if you look um, around the world, more and more places where there is uh, a increasing both regulatory focus and also stakeholder focus on uh, these three-dimensional investing, risk, return, and impact. And at the end of the day, asset owners, they are the ones who choose which right. one it should be. And we try to create solutions for, for, for all of them. Right, so it's, it's it's a kind of question that the, it comes as you say it comes it starts from the asset owner. But I suppose I suppose the, the other thing that was we, we, we have, we've we've talked mostly about the E and ESG or the kind of um, the climate change part of sustainable investing. Um, uh, but um, I suppose just given what we were talking about earlier, but the 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 difference between um, the kind of returns focused uh, approach and um, the more kind of looking at the impact of your portfolio on the world. Um, that I mean, is it do you, is it fair to say that that's kind of those two different types of investing are, are kind of nearer together in climate change or in the E of ESG? Because um, apart from you know, there are people who don't think that climate change is a problem, but like in general, it's seen as a a very obvious problem. Um, but some of the some of the S things which become more political, um, and I'm kind of thinking of stuff like the how um, Unilever got into a twist with Ben and Jerry's in Israel. Um, isn't it just harder to kind of set up um, meaningful uh, processes and protocols in, in that kind of sphere? I think you're hitting the right issue, which is that in the environmental side, partly because we've had political leadership, right, with the Paris Accords and whatnot, 
there yeah. is pretty clear consensus of where we're trying to go. Some people will disagree and say, for example, we have to also add other things like biodiversity. But not yeah. only is there a clear consensus of what the main issue is, which is climate change, there's also a very clear measure, which is carbon. And so every country yeah. signing up, I'm going to measure carbon. Carbon needs to get to zero. And so that's a good starting point. And you still have lots of debate how to measure carbon correctly, how you account for issues like biodiversity and all the nonlinearities. But on the social side, you don't have as much agreement about what are the topics to tackle, let alone what is the unit of measurement that you're trying to address. So people are doing all sorts of things all over the place, and it can feel like, um, you know, kind of what's your personal favorite issue um, yeah. that, that you sort of want to focus on. You know, in our case, we really felt like um, looking at the UN SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, was a good starting point because that is kind of built as one kind of integrated almost business plan for the world that yeah. helps you make sure you're at least not missing the obvious social things that all countries have gotten together and agreed to and that without them, you can't really think about environmental on its own. So, for example, you don't right. want to solve climate change and alleviate poverty at the same time. So you want a set of goals that says, I also want to alleviate poverty at the same time that I want to alleviate climate change. Um, right. But that's not, you know, nearly as consensus as counting carbon. And I think there'll be a lot of movement in this direction um, in the next uh, few years of investors better consolidating on what's the key set of issues. And more importantly, what's the key measurement that then we're going to go look at that's going to become anywhere like carbon in terms of that final impact. To build on that point, there are areas when it comes to social issues where there is I think a growing consensus that resembles a bit of what we've seen on the environmental side. Mm -hmm. Take an issue like forced labor or modern slavery. Right. Uh, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who would disagree that that is not a good thing for the world. Right. Incidentally, that's an, that's an example of a topic that is very much on the impact spectrum. You know, companies that use forced labor, that it's controversial to say, but that can be good for their bottom line. It's obviously terrible for those individuals and for the world. And so that's a great example, modern slavery. If you look at the, the focus on that, that's obviously an area where you are demanding, or we all want companies and investors to not just look at their own returns, but to look at the welfare of um, of the people that, that they, that they are, are, are affecting. So that's one area where there's an increasing consensus. I think you. I think we will start seeing areas, uh, let's say, around quality of jobs. Um, are jobs paying a, a living wage? Those are also areas that are where there's a, an increasing focus on it. I think one of the key things will be the more we can anchor it back towards uh, areas where there is a national and ideally an international consensus of uh, what is the North Star, what is good and what is bad. I think most people would agree that. Uh, I, in addition to forced labor, like on, on wages, most people would agree that living wages is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And then the more we can be precise in the measurement of it, for many of these areas in, in, in the social areas, companies still are not disclosing a lot of information on it. So it becomes quite difficult to do this in a fact-based and systematic manner. But I think that will change partly because of various regulations around the world, in Europe, in Australia, and elsewhere, that is requiring private sector actors to be more... Uh, to disclose more about around around these types of risks. So, okay, I just um one one thing we should touch on uh, just because we're talking about ESG is um ESG ratings and um they are they they particularly come in for a kicking not least from uh, Elon Musk who, who merrily tweets about it and um and is distressed that uh, Tesla isn't always at the, at the top of the ESG ratings list. And how how would you kind of link what we've been talking about to 
ESG ratings. Is it? Do you think they're going to get better and slightly less, more fit for purpose, or or what? Well, the ratings it comes back to the different rate ESG ratings measure different things, hmm. and so you have some ratings. I think like the one that he referred to that were really very focused on um, the financial dimension. I think that's why. Yeah. It, uh, and so, for example, you can be an oil company, and like in the near term, you'll be you'll be you'll be fine. The oil outlook is great, and maybe in 100 years you'll be bad, but in the very short term, you you, you can you, you can be fine. Now, is that really a sustainable company? Well, again, it depends on what you're trying to measure. If you're measuring the impact on their bottom line of climate change. Um, and you have a five-year horizon, that could be fine. If you're asking what is its impact on the world, that obviously is not good. So the, again, for these ratings, starting by saying, what are they trying to measure? And then two, many of these ratings are, like in, in life, just because somebody has concluded something, it, it behooves especially investors to do their own homework. And what mm. we have found is when you look at a lot of these ESG ratings, if you decompose them, into all what is really the what I, what goes into these uh, ratings? What is all the underlying data, which is what we do? We will we will assemble our own data and come up with our own assessments. Actually, what you find is that the further down you go, the more consensus there is. Like when I say down, like the further down in the in the hierarchy of data, there is actually more and more consensus. It's just how do you weigh it? Right. What are you really trying to measure? Where there's disagreement. So mostly, right. I think it comes back to the importance of be clear about what you're trying to measure and do it systematically and use a lot of different data sources and then you can do it well. And most of these ESG ratings, if you actually look at their methodologies and what they're trying to do, um, I think they are, they're better than their, their reputation. But most people just look at a ranking in a newspaper and they don't see what the methodology is, they don't see what they're trying to do, and that leads to all this confusion. Right, Karen, I mean, it, it seems like a lot of the problem here, just in general, is is that there's an, a lack of specificity about what um, when we talk about ESG and what we talk about sustainable investing, what, there's not there's not enough of doing what you guys did at the top of this conversation, which is defining your terms. And once you do define the terms, it becomes a bit uh, easier to follow and less uh, easy to abuse. Uh, how confident are you that that's going to, I mean, how confident are you that the ESG in general, the sustainable investing is, is going to get better given that that process that we we went through doesn't always seem to happen. It gets like slightly lost in the in the ether. Well, I'd say the reason I'm confident that all this is going to get better is just that the number of investors that this is becoming a must have for them, not a nice to have. That mm. it's just part of their outlook, part of the questions they ask, part of their mandate. We're seeing it everywhere, whether it's individual people with wealth that are increasingly saying, look, this is pretty important to me um, and I want to ask these questions about you know, alignment with climate change or my impact on social issues and people listing things they care about when they think about investing. And you can speak to anyone who you know works with wealth managers and they'll tell you that all the way to the largest institutions in the world, which is really where Karsten and I spend most of our time. And it's becoming really embedded you know, kind of in governance and people's understanding of what their mandate is. So yeah. the more this becomes something that investors just consider a set of questions they need to ask, then right. the whole ecosystem is kind of going to 
to set up to make that better and easier to do, right? The data provider is going to keep getting better. Then the next thing that follows the data provider is what we're already seeing with regulation, things like the SEC proposals. And of course, in Europe, we're even further along. And so that requires data at a different quality where you're not really guessing. You have to actually, you know, have companies sign off on uh, regulatory filings. And then managers, you know, like Bridgewater come around and want to serve their clients. So they have to have more clarity. And over time, that just means that the whole area is going to improve and we'll clean out and more and more investors are going to say, this makes sense to me. This doesn't make sense to me. Um, so the most important thing to us is sort of to see that increasing confidence um, that more and more investors consider this in some material way, an important part of how they think about deploying their money and are not willing to be blind to it. Want to ask questions okay. about it, want to well, care about it. There's some. There's one school of thought that says, as we were talking about earlier, climate change is clearly a a real imperative to, to do something about it um, and it's easier to measure um, whereas um, some of the other things particularly the S are harder to measure um, it's not not so kind of clear what we should, should do um, is there ever is there any kind of argument for just um, is ESG which bundles all these together still a helpful thing from your perspective or should we think? Should, should does it need a rebrand or something? Um, do we need a kind of new way of thinking about it? Uh, how do you think about that? I, I think the, the second you start asking the question around what is the implication of your portfolio on the world, I think it's important to have a, a holistic view of what uh, impact on the world means. If, for example, if all you focus on is um, like if you take one area that that's the only thing you focus on. And then you miss out on all the second and third order consequences of, mm. of that. That can be tricky. And what's an example? Mm. Like if you think solar panels, if all you care about is solar panels, good. Um, well, it's a renewable uh, source of energy. That's great. But if you don't look at how it's produced, uh, both its environmental footprint and, of course, yeah. the, the labor issues that goes into it, you're kind of missing a part of the impact on the world. If you right. don't think about uh, when you look at an electrical vehicle, if you don't ask the question of well, where is this cobalt coming from, um, if you only look at part of it, I think you just immediately will face issues that um, that things are are interconnected and that there are trade-offs. And in a way, the UN SDGs inherent in them, the fact that there are 17 goals, you know, some people might say, well, that is so complicated. Yeah, yeah the world is complicated. And right. the world is full of inherent trade-offs. And you kind of have to uh, account for that. And that's why I think at the end of the day, it's you can have people focusing on different things, different emphasis, but um, still being aware that uh, that there are second and third order consequences of the choices that you make and that you should look at uh, the downstream effects of your of your priorities. I think that's important. Okay, Karen, we'll give the last word to you. Do you have anything to add on that particular point? No, I mean, I think Karsten said it well. People who really believe in climate change um, and the importance of it realize that it can't be done without thinking about social issues. It just can't. Climate change is inherently an issue that affects uh, poor people more, people in warmer countries and so on. We have to we have to think about these issues along the way. And it's the same transformation in someone's investing, no matter if they're asking a social question or environmental question. The main big shift is thinking, I want to think about how the investments I have interact with the real world in some way. And that is a pretty big revolution. It, it truly is a revolution in, um, in how investors invest. It's something that was not done by the vast majority of investors uh, for you know certainly the last many decades of investing. And so 
that revolution, I think, is really exciting. I think it's really great for the world to have uh, large and small investors alike start asking that question and seeing what impact they could have through asking that question. And uh, while you know the, there's been a lot of confusion and branding and different people doing different things and greenwashing, that shift towards what I think is really revolutionary change, I think we're going to look back in a decade or two and say, this is now it's just a fundamental part of investing. Most people don't invest without it. And uh, wherever we were in 2022, we're now in a radically better place in terms of being able to do that in a really rigorous way. Okay, well, um, that's a agreeably positive note on which to end. Thanks very much, Carson and Karen, for um, taking us through the various minefields of sustainable investing. Uh, really good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us, George. That wraps up this episode of The Exchange. Thank you to Amanda Gomez and Pranav Kiran who produced it. You can get The Exchange on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you like to listen. Do also sign up to our sister podcast Viewsroom and check out our views every day on breakingviews.com.